Chapter 22 of The Browns at Mount Hermon by Pansy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 22 Questions for Mary Brown to Answer. Still, it was an embarrassment. Mary Brown never caught the interested look in the other Miss Brown's bright eyes without remembering that there was a sense in which she was playing a part, and wondering uncomfortably how her part was to end. There were hours, spent quite alone, when she was sad beyond reason, she told herself, over the changes that were near at hand. The summer was passing swiftly. In a few, a very few more weeks, it must be Euston Square again, and that ridiculous Alice next door, and the obnoxious doctor, who was by this time without doubt fully established. There, too, would be Richard Wade, but over that name she set her lips firmly, so much at least the summer had taught her. She believed that at last she had made Richard understand, yet it might be hard for him to meet her constantly in the old atmosphere. There were going to be a great many hard things. Could she possibly leave all these dear new people, good, kind Mrs. Roberts and that darling little flower Aileen, and go back to the old life? She never could. It should never be the old life. Some other things had been radically changed for her by this summer's outing. But she did not see her way clear. She thought of Circleville, and the little six-roomed cottage with the tenderest possible smile, and a slow blush suffusing her face. That charming little supper for two on the quaint old-fashioned table with the old-fashioned blue willow-patterned dishes, she could not carry out her dream with regard to it. There were people—oh, yes, there were now a number of people whom she would really like to take there as her guests, to spend two weeks, six weeks, perhaps, but it could not be managed without too much absurdity. They were workers, all of them, with responsible places to fill, that were waiting for them. Only she was an idler. It was at this point that she sighed wearily. If it could all in some way be different, if there could be made a radical change not only in her life but in herself— that was really what was needed, a radical change in herself. She needed to be made new. It could be done, at least it had been done for others, had she not watched the process of development? Dear little Aileen, not merely a butterfly any more. Her wings were still bright and airy, and she was sweeter, oh, a thousand times sweeter than before, but what was it? Had the wings become immortal? Then there was that browning boy whose life had been completely transformed. She had spent an hour in Professor Fowles's near vicinity but the day before, and heard him tell what a remarkable change had asserted itself here. How, from being a dangerous element, he had become a power for good. Why should these and others be capable of such experiences while she— She made a distinct pause in her thoughts at this point. She was conscious that the why had been made plain to her. At least these two young people had told her plainly, carefully, of their own part in the transaction. Both of them used, apparently because no other term would serve them the language of surrender. "'I have given myself away,' had been Aileen's simple explanation, her face radiant the while, and the young man, with a young man's way of telling it, had said the same thing. "'I was just as conscious of a deliberate act of the will as I am conscious at this moment that I will to rise and open this door, and just as certain that I could leave the door closed against the incoming guest as I am that I could leave this door as it is if I chose.' Now Mary Brown knew that it was this distinct and deliberate effort of the will from which she shrank. She had been for years, for more years than most women of her age, a law unto herself. She had willed to do this and not to do that in an entirely autocratic way, and there had been none to gainsay her, very few who had even the right to advise, after her father's sudden death had left her sole representative of the family. And before that time her training had been to an unusual degree in the same direction. Her father, immersed in business cares and responsibilities, not only idolized his daughter but believed in her as the most intelligent and capable young woman who ever lived, 
and deferred to her opinions, seconded her plans, and even asked her advice in a way that was flattering in the extreme, and trained her judgment not only, but her pride. She did not name it pride. She did not even know that such was its name. But it kept her from being ready to yield her will to even the supreme will. She liked to manage herself. She told herself that there was something uncanny about all this talk of yielding to an unseen force. She did not understand it. It was not that she had said in so many words, I will not. It sounded better to say, I cannot. Yet with strange inconsistency she mourned over the desolateness of her life, and believed that she meant it when she told herself that she would be willing to give all she had in the world to be able to say once more, Father, may I? With equal unreasonableness she began to resent the fact that very little was now being said to her about this matter, which filled the lives of those about her. Mr. Brown had not for some time said a word that could be construed as a personal appeal, and even Mrs. Roberts, though she talked continually of her joy in Aileen, had no appeal to make to her handmaiden. "'They think I am a hopeless case,' Mary Brown told herself, and tried to laugh. But her irritation over this state of things was extreme, and unaccountable to herself. Why should she care to have them talk to her? She realized that what was important must have already been said. Probably they could not make it plainer, but— did she really want them to keep pressing her to do what she did not mean to do? She was amazed at her own inconsistency and bewildered over her unrest. One morning she precipitated a climax by what could be only named ill-temper. She had been to the morning meeting for the first time in several days, and was hastening home when Mr. Brown overtook her. "'Dr. Hart was fine this morning, was he not?' he said. "'Don't you think his running commentary on the text is wonderfully rich?' "'I don't know,' she said brusquely. "'I suppose I am not capable of judging.' "'Didn't you enjoy it?' he asked gently. "'No. To be quite frank, I do not enjoy any of the words spoken at these meetings. As I told you, I am not capable of understanding them. Isn't there something in the Bible about people speaking in an unknown tongue? To me they are in an unknown tongue.' If she thought he was going to argue with her, she was mistaken. He said not a word. She waited a minute, then with an irritable desire to prove her point, said— what, for instance, do you suppose common mortals like myself could get from his exposition of that twenty-third verse? What is the twenty-third verse? he asked, taking his testament from under his arm. I do not recall the words. She glanced at the book, and astonishment turned her thoughts for the moment into a new channel. Do you always use a Greek testament? she asked, her surprise showing in her tone. Not always, he said quietly, though if she had been looking at him she would have noticed an unusual flush on his face. I like to look out the verse in the Greek. It sometimes makes the meaning clearer. My father was a clergyman, Miss Brown, and it suited his fancy to begin to teach me Greek at the same time that he taught me to spell cat and dog and all the other diminutives, so it happens that I am rather more familiar with the language than is common in these days. But you tempt me to ask if you always read your testament in French. She looked quickly down at her testament with a little exclamation, and immediately hid it in her bag as she said, I had forgotten that I had it. I am like yourself. When a child I lived for years in the house where there was a French maid, and I learned French as soon as I did English. But she was unreasonably annoyed over the episode. Did he think she was trying to make a parade of her knowledge, and had called attention to his Greek testament for a purpose? If he did, he put it all aside as unimportant. He was reading from his Greek testament. If a man love me, he will keep my words. What is the trouble with this twenty-third verse, my friend? I don't understand it, as I told you, at least not in the light that Dr. Hart placed it. Can you make your difficulty plainer? It is all difficulty. Someone is saying distinctly— It is Jesus who is speaking, he interrupted her to say. Oh, very well, then. Jesus says, We will come unto him and make our abode with him. What can that be but a poetical thought? 
The look of commiseration with which she was regarded irritated her. Did this man presume to pity her? Perhaps he would laugh at her ignorance if he dared. But there was no sign of laughter. His voice was grave, and also gentle. "'It is not poetry, my friend, it is fact. If there were any way in which I could convince you of its truth, I should be more glad than words can express.' The evil spirit within her tempted her to speak lightly, almost scornfully. "'But my ignorance is too dense, I suppose, for enlightenment. I have observed that my friends generally have given me over as a reprobate.' Perhaps he did not consider this worthy of answer, at least he made no attempt to reply to it, but after a moment of silence, during which she had time to grow ashamed of herself, he said with exceeding gravity, "'I am going to presume upon your friendship, and ask you to do me a favor, so great a favor as to pledge yourself to a certain line of action. Will you, at your first opportunity for privacy, go on your knees to God, and say to Him just these words, "'Lord Jesus Christ, I open my heart to Thee, come in, as Thou hast promised,' and make thine abode with me, and will you repeat just those words again and again and again and again if need be, until you are answered?" But she looked at him almost defiantly, as she said with as near an approach to pertness as she had indulged in many years, "'I am sorry not to be able to accommodate you, but you are asking an impossibility. I never say words that I do not mean.' "'Do you mean, then, that you consciously refuse him? That you will not open your heart to God?' She paled before the solemnity of the phrase, and the exceeding gravity of his manner, and faltered that she did not understand anything about it. "'Do not try to understand,' he said. "'Don't attempt to reason it out. You have gone beyond that. There is a mystery about it that human wisdom cannot fathom, but the part that I am asking you to do you can surely perform if you will. Will you?' She tried to speak lightly as she said that perhaps she would try, but he left her no loophole for escape. "'No,' he said. I am not asking you to try, I am asking you to perform. A blessed man who has been in heaven for years once spoke a helpful word to me. My boy, he said, with his hand resting on my head, I heard you speak of being more faithful. Don't do it. Be faithful. Those small words with which we limit ourselves are often insincere. We cannot honestly try to do a thing, unless there is a possibility of our not being able to do it. I know you can do what I ask. Will you? "'I will not promise anything,' she said, frightened, and fled away by the side entrance into the house. It would have made a study for this young woman, and possibly a revelation of character, could she have known how similar had been the lines of approach to her and to the one whom she looked upon as a mental and moral child, Aileen. The boy just beginning his work for Christ, but with the background of an education in Christianity to aid him, had perceived almost at a glance that what the pretty girl beside him needed was something to move her indolent little will to definite action in the right direction. And the mature Christian, who was always about his master's business, had long known that what the strong-willed young woman needed was not instruction, despite her constant assurance that she did not understand, but a definite turning of her soul toward Jesus Christ, and a definite surrender to Him as her dependence. So by different roads indeed, yet having a marked surface similarity, she and Aileen had been pressed to the same standpoint. Given honest action upon their part, both workers knew to a certainty what the result would be. The boy knew it because he had been trained almost at his mother's knee in the father's plan for saving his straying children, and the other knew it because he had watched many times the working and the yielding of the human will, and his study about it had been based on the words, Ye will not come unto me that ye might have life. It is true that Miss Brown had promised nothing, yet the man who had tried to help her went away hopeful. He believed that she would be better than her word. The very irritability, almost rudeness indeed, that she had allowed herself to exhibit, was to this student of the human mind a hopeful sign. 
So he went away to wait and to pray. End of chapter 22